Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Everybody, it's Joshua Fields Milburn recording a quick podcast intro from a hotel room in California, which is a bit of a coincidence because we have a live version of a podcast we, we recently recorded in California, beautiful Los Angeles, California. Ryan and I were on tour a couple months ago, and so what you're about to hear is, is a live version of one of our podcasts. We took our documentary, which is called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things to more than a dozen cities and we, after each event, we answered questions uh, with, with the live crowd there. So questions about the film, but also questions about minimalism and decluttering and relationships and mental clutter and finances and sort of everything in between. And uh, speaking of, of being on tour, Ryan and I have a couple additional tour stops coming up in the near future. We're going to be in Fargo, North Dakota. We're speaking at a conference there, but then we have a separate tour stop scheduled for July 19th. We're going to screen our documentary and then we're also going to do another live version of, of this podcast. So that's Fargo, North Dakota. And then after that, in August, uh, on August 11th, we're going to do a special, uh, a special charity event in Orlando, Florida. This is going to help the victims of that recent horrible uh, shooting in the Orlando nightclub, the terrorist attack there. And so we're trying to help out the victims, and you can help out too. We'd love to see you there. There's still tickets to both of those events over at theminimalists.com slash tour. And speaking of the film, it's still playing in theaters right now in the United States, but also some new dates in Canada and Australia. You can find all those at minimalismfilm.com. And while you're there, if, you, if you're interested in pre-ordering the film, or if you're anywhere else in the world and you can't see it in a theater then you can find the details for that as well. If you pre-order the film, which comes out uh, on August 2nd, but if you get it before then on, on Vimeo, you get six hours of, of bonus interviews and content. We, there's some great stuff there. We just couldn't fit into the film, but we're looking forward to being able to share that with you as well. Find all of that over at minimalismfilm.com. And here is a live uh, version of our podcast Ryan and I recorded this in front of a, a sold-out crowd in Los Angeles, California, a couple of months ago. Hope you enjoy it. All right, let's. Uh, hope, hopefully, Sean's ready. Sean, make your bird call if you're ready. <laughs> and um, I want to welcome Jeff and Marla Saris to the stage. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to a live version of the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And we are live in Los Angeles. So, so normally how this works is we take uh, callers. They'll, they'll call up and they'll leave us voicemails on a, uh, a voicemail box. That'd be really weird if we took calls right now. And so instead of, instead of that, uh, you all can pretend to be the callers, but live in person. So we'd love for you to come up and ask a question if you have one. Now, you can ask us a question about anything. It could be minimalism or decluttering or mental clutter, health, relationships, careers, Ryan's hair care products, whatever you like. And we will answer your questions. And if I don't have an answer for your question, I will just answer a different question. We have a bag of answers up here. So... Feel free to ask whatever you want. You will get an answer. If you want to form a line here, we'll, uh, we'll get started with the questions. The first person has to break the seal, though. <laughs> this is a shy city. <laughs> All right. Hey. Just say your name and uh, whatever your question is. Hi, my name is Bill Black, and uh, I'm well on my road to minimalism. And I hit it. You got the outfit, man, just so you know. The, the black me? T- no. You got the outfit, black T-shirt, jeans. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Did you buy it? So on April Fool's this year, we, we put on our website uh, a black T-shirt at, for $729. And if you looked really close, the, the folks from Spire, they designed, they made this beautiful, like, box, and 
and it was velvet lined and but if you looked really close at the t-shirt it had a Hanes tag on it or it was fruit of the loom fruit of the loom and it was $729 now we did the math on this and if everyone who clicked the buy now button now I realize that not everyone who clicked the button would have actually purchased the $700 t-shirt but if everyone would have purchased it it would have been about six million dollars and it turns out we're in the wrong business. We need to be in the fashion business. <laughs> I'm sorry to derail you, man. Go ahead. No, no, that's great. I actually did click the button. So. <laughs> As you can see. Yeah. I've been in Hollywood 27 years. It's compulsive. Uh, I hit a milestone last um, weekend. I had two boxes left. They've been sitting there for like a year. And I, I was actually at the L.A. Minimalist meeting we just had. And I said, I'm down to two boxes. I just got to do something with it. I did it. That day after, it's gone. It's empty. It's scanned, given away, whatever. The boxes are empty. I kept the boxes. They're in the closet. I just look at them. And I keep going and looking. Here's the, here's the question. Okay, I used to gather great pleasure from, you know, the new iPhone, the new get gadget. And I've changed my ways, as I'm sure a lot of us have. I keep, I used to get this momentary pleasure from buying this new thing. We all know what that's about. Um, now I have this sustained pleasure from just looking at those two empty boxes. The question is, give me the psychology behind it. It's the exact opposite of what I used to get. It's, I'm, I'm happy about nothing. Can, can, you, can you? What a great book title. <laughs> Copyright pending. Uh, so the psychology, I can talk to you a little bit about the psychology of hoarding. Uh, They've, they've done some, some studies with, with chimpanzees and bonobos, and, and um, we find that when you give a chimpanzee uh, a banana, he or she will eat the banana, right? But if you give the chimpanzee more than one banana and enough to share so that he or she has enough for himself and, and feels secure with that, but enough to share, uh, they, they will share it with the, the, the people, the people, the chimpanzees. <laughs> hey, chimpanzees are people too. No, they're not. Um, oh. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so they will, they'll share it. But if you give them a, an entire horde of bananas, more bananas than what they could possibly share, they will, they won't, not only will they not share, but they'll, they will fight other chimpanzees to try to keep them away from the bananas. So maybe the, the opposite of that is letting go. And, and I mean, I think the difference between us and, and chimpanzees is you know, we have this frontal lobe that allows us to, to, uh, that allows us to, to think about security and realize that, that real security is different from what we've been, this meme that we've been sold of security, this American dream of security. We've been told that if we accumulate enough things, th then we'll be secure. If we have the right paycheck, the right job title, the right identity, the right clothes, the right car, the right house, then that equals security. You hear this other term all the time, job security, right? But, th but the truth is, we don't feel secure when we get those things. The opposite is often the truth. We then become scared to lose that thing, just like the chimpanzee. They acquire this horde of bananas, you know, a thousand bananas, and all of a sudden, now they're just terrified they're going to lose it. And I think once we realize that we've lost it, and it's okay, in fact, it's even better without, then we realize that that feeling, that, that, that checkout line high that we got it doesn't last far past the checkout line. And it certainly doesn't last once you get that credit card statement and you're like, oh shit, like now I have to pay for this. Or you get that first car payment and uh, bill in the mail. And you realize, okay, the, the actual price of this thing isn't just the price tag. It's anxiety, it's overwhelm, it's stress, it's having to take care of it and store it and clean it and occupy space in my mind and keeps me from being free in many cases. And so, that's my, my short answer. Yeah, um, it made, that question made me think about uh, like, like my diet and how for the longest time I conditioned myself to eat really bad food. I mean, uh, Josh and I, we've been friends since we were fat little fifth graders. We were literally like the two fattest kids <laughs> in our class. 
and uh, you know we we uh, we ate a lot of cheeseburgers and cheese fries and cheese nachos and a lot of other cheese related products. Uh, we would we would munch on after school. Like I s- we were constipated a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was that was like our uh, literally like our after school snack before we go home and eat dinner. Um, but what I know is that after changing my diet over the last many years, I I have conditioned myself uh, through habits to enjoy healthy foods to the point where, and I'm really going to offend someone, I'm so sorry, but like I went to In-N-Out Burger today for the first time ever, and it was, it was all right. I mean, um, you know, it was, but I think it's because I'm so used to not eating that stuff that my, I just wasn't conditioned to like really embrace the, the uh, fast foodness of that. Still very tasty, don't get me wrong. Um, but but I, I think the same thing holds true with, with your situation where you have now incorporated really good habits into your life. And um, it's kind of, you know, through that conditioning that you've been able to, to kind of now enjoy nothing. <laughs> Hi, my name is Paul. And um, I was wondering if you had any specific advice for us living here in Los Angeles because it is very expensive to live here. Um, we have areas of town that a lot of people want to live in where average rents are going, you know, $2,500, $3,000. And um, life here is pretty expensive. Auto insurance isn't cheap. Um, and uh, I think a lot of us like living in Los Angeles. We have friends and family here. And, um, you know, as much as, you know, I'd love to come and move with you in Montana, um, you know, I do actually have a lot of people around here that I that I really dig. Um, tiny houses, you know, that's that's kind of a wonderful idea. Forty, fifty thousand dollars, you own it. You don't owe the bank anything. But here in Los Angeles, there are laws that are actually designed to keep us from living in these small spaces. Um, you know, so uh, you know, like uh, it, it would be great. But I mean, there are like very specific barriers from. That, that kind of have us working to make a lot of money just to live here. And um, I just wanted to know if you had any specific advice for, for us that want to continue living in big cities um, and, you know, and have a better quality of life, I guess. Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting thing because it's a, a bit of a paradox. The, the question ultimately comes down to, to what do you value most, right? In fact, people in New York or Chicago or L.A. will often ask us, like, well, how, how can I be a minimalist in this city because it's so steeped in, in consumption and consumerism? And while that is certainly true, and, espe- and that drives prices, uh, the cost of living up, it's also true that in many instances, it's easier to be a minimalist in a large city because you have access to, to far more things. And I think we are, we are pretty rapidly shifting from a, a culture of ownership to a culture of access. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm against owning certain things. That, that's not the case at all. There, there are many things that I own that I get immense value from, but I don't have to own a swimming pool to have access to a swimming pool. I don't have to have a basketball court in my backyard to, to, to have access to, to basketball. But now we're seeing that with technology bleed over into all these other areas of life that we never expected 10, 15 years ago. You know, I used to own 2,000 CDs. I used to own 2,000 books. I owned four or 500 DVDs. I mean, I had 100 VHS tapes when I was, when I was going through my, my whole, you know, uh, minimizing process. No one laughs at that because they're cataloging the, the VHS tapes that are in their basement right now. <laughs> but, but the truth is that I don't need to own any of those artifacts anymore. I now need access to them, so I don't have to go buy the, D- the every DVD for you know 15 bucks or whatever and own that thing. I can have uh, virtually unlimited access for a, for a much lower price. So we're, we're finding that we have access to more things than ever now. That there a curation problem uh, then comes into play, and, and we could talk about that some other time because we we certainly need to to as Patrick Rohn talked about in the film, we we need to have a certain discernment when it comes to weeding out you know, the junk and, and curating what we watch. But, but now we have, we have access to, to so many things, and you get that most in, in a big city like this. Uh, the question then becomes, 
is what I value, is, is that worth the cost of me being here? And for me, yes, relationships are, are very important. And can you be healthy in this city or, or does that need to take, uh, does it take being somewhere else to, to be healthy? Uh, is this a, a city that I can pursue what I'm passionate about and be creative? Is this a place where I can grow? Is there a community uh, that I can contribute to as well? And, and when you start asking these questions, you'll figure out whether or not it's the right place to be. So whenever I'm, I'm asking those questions, it, it, it becomes twofold. Can I afford this, like monetarily afford it, but not just money? Can, can I afford you know, the, the, the clutter and, and uh, the time and attention that a, a city like this may take from me? And, and ultimately was what it comes down to is the opportunity cost of that versus does this add value to my life? And is this the, the best scenario for me? And it sounds to me like for you, like Los Angeles is a place you want to be and it becomes difficult to be able to, to afford it. And, and, and I'm sure that is uh, a problem for, for a lot of people. And I don't think there is an easy answer to say, what, well, we need to uh, make more money or, or spend less. I mean, those are all, I mean, yeah. Th th that's something I did with my life was, you know, I, I made really great money in the corporate world. Uh, making $200,000 a year in Dayton, Ohio is probably like uh, making more than $200,000 a year in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> and when I walked away from that, I, my, my first plan was to be a, a barista and work at, there's a coffee shop two blocks from my apartment and uh, just write fiction full time and work, at, work in that coffee shop, write fiction. And then this whole minimalism thing happened as a, as a really beautiful accident. And, and I can tell you that that year I walked away, I went from making a couple hundred grand to making $23,000 a year. And I had never been happier, but I had never been more responsible with my resources as well. And, and I finished paying off debt that year. I, uh, and I realized that the discontent that I had around money when I was growing up poor was the same discontent I had around money when I was making really good money is I wasn't spending it as wisely as I could. Jeff and I live in Chicago, so we can relate. We own a home and I can tell you that we considered selling our house, but we get great value out of our home. It's our home. You know, and we love to travel, but um, we live right by O'Hare, so it's really easy for us to hop on a plane from where we live. Um, and and that I think the everything that Josh said is sp spot on, and you just need to keep questioning the things that you invite into your life. Yeah, I, I love L.A., man. Like, I was just telling Josh in the green room, I'm like, dude, every time I come to the city, like, I just feel so good. Like, it's the, uh, just, the, like, the people and the awesome weather and, like, the awesome restaurants. But I know that if I moved out to L.A., like, I would be house poor, essentially. And uh, that's a decision that I, that I make, like, to not move out to a city like this. Um, if I had f a bunch of friends and family out here, I might be willing to go house poor to, to stay close to those folks. But, you know, ultimately, um, if you're asking for ways to, you know, kind of live in a city and, uh, uh, that has expensive rent or ex expensive real estate, I mean, there's always options like Airbnb. You can rent out an extra room, make some extra money. Um, but yeah, there there is a a, uh, a decision that has to be made because when you live in such an expensive place, it does require you to get a job where you make a lot of money. And that, if if you're forced into that situation, it can make you make a decision to take on a job that might not necessarily align with your values and beliefs. And, and I think, like, that. well, I know that's definitely where I was, where I didn't care about selling cell phones to five-year-olds. You know, I cared about, like, I need to make six figures. Like, that's what's going to make me happy. And uh, ultimately, um, now, uh, you know, let's say the internet blew up and um, all of our books spontaneously combusted and, like, I had to go back and find a regular job and I had to move to L.A. I'm just, like, trying to relate here. Um, I would, I would totally, you know, I would probably, you know, start off really small rental rooms for somewhere and, like, try and save up some money. And then, you know, if I wanted to buy a place, have a, you know, 30%, 40% down payment. Um, but, yeah, I would certainly approach it a lot differently than just moving out here and, you know, jumping into a job that I might be miserable at. Well, you're making movies now, so maybe we'll see you in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Hi guys. Hello. Howdy. <laughs> My name is Justin Archer. And hey, hey, brother. 
Hey, how's it going, man? Thanks for the invite. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, I just wanted to acknowledge you guys and the whole Minimalist team for all the amazing content that you put out from the, the blog to the books to the essays to the podcast, uh, this film. It's all amazing. That said... Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm just going to let that linger there. No, that said, uh, if all of it were to disappear, don't hate me, I don't want to jinx anything, but if all of it were to disappear, what would be... And, and you were on your deathbed. I didn't really plan this going this dark, <laughs> really. Uh, and you were on your question. deathbed. What would be your top three life lessons or life truths you would like to leave behind as your legacy? Oh, wow. <laughs> Josh? <laughs> you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. Um, <laughs> we'll just go one, two, three. I like to do that. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the whole um, love people and use things because the opposite never works, uh, that to me rings so much truer than money doesn't buy happiness because we're all raised with that platitude of money doesn't buy happiness. Um, but, you know, the, that, that saying um, implies the same thing, but I think that's what, those would probably be my last words I would really want people to connect with. I see your five fingers. I applaud you for that. We have a site called Paleoporn, so we do a lot in that, no. kind of that space. We're very into that. But it's, it's all it's, about... It's food porn, not porn Food porn, porn not porn porn. <laughs> <laughs> but sort of everything that we've, that's brought us to where we are today with what we do with sort of lawn minimalism, with, um, with our lifestyle, with food and everything else, it really comes down to decisions. And... There's no right answer. There's no right way. He says there's no template in the film because there's not. Everyone is going to have a different path. And it's essentially a compass. As long as you have your compass set in the correct direction, everything is going to work out. You sort of look at things generally from a map perspective. A lot of people want to give tactics and things like that. But it's all just a bunch of little decisions that gets us to where we are today. And I think that's one of the kind of key things that I'd really want to kind of convey to people. Go Bears. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Hey, just want, give, out, give out your website real quick, because he, uh, he does some, some really great, um, like, I don't know you would call it physical therapy videos and stuff that I've been watching lately. Um, and I've been doing some of the routines while I've been on the road. I don't know if he even knows that. But uh, you want to give out your website? Uh, yeah, it's theposturguy.com. And uh, also, can I get one of those uh, free and transferable hugs from you guys? Hell yeah, you can. Come on of up course. here. <laughs> Start the hug line early. Uh, <laughs> it's a hug fest. Howdy. Hi, my name is Nalisa. Um, I found out about you guys through your podcast. Thank you. I love well, it. Thank you. Um, I'm not really a minimalist. I think the focus of the conversation that I like from you guys is about the job. When I was little, I really wanted to be a lawyer. And then when I grew up and I was going to college in 2008, I thought, well, maybe there's too many lawyers, so I should be an accountant. And I don't really like accounting. <laughs> so now I'm like, maybe I should be a lawyer again. But the idea of debt sort of scares me because I already have $40,000 in college debt. So if I did want to switch careers, how should I go about that transition as a minimalist thinking, you know, about all the debt that it would require to go through two years of law school and work and things like that. Yeah, so in, in terms of debt, I, I never encourage anyone to take on any new debt at all, ever. There's no such thing as good debt. I'm going to say that again. There is no such thing as good debt. There is some debt that is more acceptable than, than other debt, obviously, right? Like having a mortgage, seven-year mortgage with 50% down and, and uh, uh, you know, a, a secure uh, ability to pay on that is appreciably better than getting a payday loan at a corner store. But th the truth is that all debt is going to, it's going to be an anchor for us. And at the very least, it may get to you to where you want to be, but there is often another template to get you where you want to be. So my question would be to you, if, if you really are able to cultivate that into being a, a 
career that you're passionate about, and, and in fact, I don't like the term career, um, but if you find that you know being an attorney is your mission, I, I have a, a CPA back in Missoula, Montana, so our accountant is really passionate about accounting. I have no idea how someone <laughs> is really passionate about accounting. But Ryan is really passionate about snowboarding. And I have no idea how someone is passionate about snowboarding. <laughs> and, and, and so when, when I look at other people's passions, I know that they've been able to cultivate that in, into a passion. But I also know that there are, there are attorneys, there are accountants, there are snowboarders, there's whomever who got to where they are, there's a certain percentage, in some cases a small percentage, who got to where they are without acquiring any additional debt, any additional student loans. So I mean, whether it's becoming a doctor and, and going with like the National Service Corps for a couple years and, and they, they sort of pay back your loans for you, um, there is someone else who has a model or a template that you can follow. And so the first thing I, I would encourage you to do is, is question, is this something I can cultivate into a passion? Am I going to be passionate about this or is it just a means to an end? A and if it's just a means to an end, I would probably tell you to try to find something else that you can cultivate into a passion. But here's the good news. You weren't born with a pre-existing passion. You weren't meant to be an astronaut or an attorney or a yoga instructor or whatever. And we fa in fact, we hear that all the time, right? You should just follow your passion, right? You see it at, like in self-help books and on blogs and, and um, on successories posters at universities often. Follow your passion. That's shitty advice. The better advice is to cultivate a passion because you weren't born to do any one thing, but there are dozens, likely hundreds of things that align with your values. They align with your beliefs, your interests, your desires. And you can cultivate one of those things, pick one of those things, and spend time cultivating that into a passion. Now, don't confuse excitement for passion. And I think quite often we get really excited about an idea. And then, of course, when we, for me, it was, it was writing. And, and I would get really excited about an idea for a new short story or a novel. But then, after working on it for a day or two days or a week or two weeks, I'd hit a, a roadblock and it would get hard. And I'm like, oh, obviously I'm not passionate about this because it's difficult. I'm just going to go get on email or check Facebook or watch TV because I'm not passionate about this thing. And I learned throughout my 20s there was no real payoff because I di wasn't willing to put in the work. I wasn't willing to drudge through the drudgery. And, and it wasn't that writing didn't align with my values. It certainly did align with my values. But... I had to put in the work, I had to put in the effort, because the real payoff, the real passion, comes after the tedium, after the resistance, after those mundane tasks, and cult really cultivating that into a passion after doing the work. And so find something that aligns with your values, and then find someone who has a template, someone who has gotten through law school or, or whatever other path you want to take without taking on any more debt, because I guarantee you, you can find someone who has done that and pick their brain you'll find a way to do it without going into debt. There you go. There you go. Talk to her afterwards. She's right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of had one more question. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead. What presidential candidate nominee is most minimalist in your opinion? Don't so, make it too political, just okay. opinion. <laughs> Josh in 2020. <laughs> Yeah, I'm short a year this, this year. Um, the, the most minimalist president we ever had was a man named Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s. Um, he was really the minimalist president, and, and we had the best economy. We've, you've heard of the Roaring Twenties. Um, and, and the reason he was such a, a good president is he did what a president is supposed to do, is he presided over the country and wasn't this... Uh, dictator or, or authoritarian. Um, we don't have anyone like that now. Um, and, and I don't want to say there isn't hope for someone like that in the future, um, but, but currently our options are, are slim. And, and we do have options, though, at a local level. And I think it's far more important to be involved locally than it is in this uh, nat national dog and pony show, for sure.
And by the way, uh, one of us is a socialist and one of us is a libertarian, so <laughs> we're not going to talk specifics. Hi, I'm Julie, um, and I'm brand new to this movement, so I just want to say thank you. This is, this is wonderful. Thank you. Um, I was struck by not, not just what a profound effect this could have on my life, but also the profound effect it could have on my family's life, especially my grandmother who's you know, in her 80s. I was curious um, in your experience, what were kind of the, the best key steps to taking that first big step to decluttering your life and kind of starting on this journey for, for newcomers? Jeff, what's, what's the, the easiest way to force your grandma to become a minimalist? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a packing party. <laughs> no, but to really, we just need to lead by example. I know you're asking about kind of the first steps, but you referenced your grandmother. And we've been minimalist for, I don't know, seven or eight years. We've been paleo for six. We've, we've been doing a lot of things, making these decisions for ourselves. And we've seen amazing benefit. Like it's the quality of life that we've experienced has grown immensely. Neither of our families are either minimalist or paleo. And you could say they are the polar opposite of both of those. And that's actually okay though, because it really, we don't need to really change anybody. We're living, a, we think a great life, what, how we wanna lead it. And people end up just sort of coming along. It, it takes time, everyone, it takes more time for others uh, because we all have different experiences. We're coming from a different place. But yeah, really just leading by example is, I mean, from our perspective, really the best way. Yeah, so he talked about the packing party. For those who don't know about the packing party, um, that's, that was my first step where we literally packed up um, all my belongings in my 2,000 square foot condo, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and I acted like I was moving, essentially. So I would unpack things day by day as I needed it. That's probably too extreme for a lot of people as a first step, um, especially those with, with families. Um, but what I was gonna say is you could maybe try doing the men's game with, with your grandma. Uh, that's worked for tens of thousands of our readers where they will find someone who wants to declutter, get rid of some stuff. So that's kind of the first step. She has to at least want to declutter a little bit. But, it, but it's a fun game, because you get rid of one thing on the first day of the month, two things on the second day of the month, three things on the third day of the month, so forth and so on. And uh, you guys can bet a dinner or a movie or, you know, the winner, or I'm sorry, the loser has to cook dinner for the winner, something like that. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, if you both make it through the whole month, you both win, because you, you get rid of about 500 items each. But that's a nice way, you know, a palatable way to kind of get into it without having a packing party or, you know, renting a dumpster and just throwing away everything, um, that's, that's also pretty extreme. She would, you know, it's still possible for her to be completely miserable if she just, like, threw everything away. Um, but, yeah, the, the men's game, or even a packing party in, like, a linen closet, you know, something, something small like that, that's a pretty good start. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'm going to give you a copy, so I don't feel like I'm selling you a book or anything. I'm going to give you a copy of one of our books called Essential, and there's 12 chapters on sort of the 12 different areas of... of of, you know, it starts with decluttering and minimalism, and then it moves to other areas of life as well. Um, I'd love to give you a, a copy afterward, um, if we can grab one for you. I think that'll be definitely beneficial for her, and a lot more tips and practical rules that, that you can help her out with, for sure. Thank you. I, I'm getting the wrap-up from Sean, so I have three people left in line. Let's do rapid-fire, tweetable kind of questions, and we'll try to give tw tweetable type of answers. Hello, name is uh, Nick. I just wanted to go over something interesting. I went through the material aspect already for the past few years, but uh, what I've noticed now is I'm trying to get to a level of pursuing the things that are most valuable, and I'm noticing that due to cost of living, uh, debt that you cannot get rid of, like student loans, things like that, it's a choice of having to work extremely hard to the point where I actually did two full-time jobs uh, last week, almost rolled a car off the highway and overnight and just said, forget it, it's not worth it, quit, but then you're back to the same boat. So the question is, how do you be become the minimalist you want to be, pursue the things you want to do, 
when you're wrapped up of trying to live in a life that requires you to work really, really hard and put those things on hold in order to get to that level. And I think that's something, especially here in LA, a lot of people will experience. Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, um, you have to have a plan on how to get rid of the debt. If you don't have a plan, I'm gonna recommend uh, Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. It's a freaking awesome, it's just, it's really good, man. Uh, but, but you know, I, I think when people hear simple or they hear minimalism, they think easy. And simple is not necessarily easy. I mean, for the first year and a half of my journey, it was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, going to school, and writing for the website. That was not sustainable. But I knew that the end was near, and, and, and I did see the end in sight. So if you don't have a plan, like, get a plan. And then the, the, the next biggest thing is you got to stick to that plan. And yeah, I mean, you might have to work a couple jobs for a short period of time, um, but but as long as you can see that end inside, it's it's a lot easier to kind of get through that. Uh, but yeah, get get that total money makeover, man. If that's if you don't have a plan right now, if if you want the plan that that Ryan and I use to get out of debt, but also start saving for the future, you can just go to theminimalists.com/freedom, and uh, there's an essay there called Financial Freedom: Five Difficult Steps to Get Out of Debt because they're not easy steps. They are. It is difficult, but it's well worth it because you remove that anchor from your life, you experience a totally new kind of freedom. And I wish you a lot of luck, brother. Last two here. Hi, uh, my name is Jessica, and I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on the documentary. It was very inspiring. Um, I also want to give a big shout out to your publicist. I work in publicity. I, I know how tough it can be. You guys have these rooms packed. I saw the sold out listings on your website. Congratulations. It's great to see people Thank out you. doing something positive that's changing lives. So I just wanted to applaud you for all of that. Um, I read your book, Everything That Remains. And one of the questions that I had that I was kind of curious about, I didn't see a lot of in the book, was when you did make that transition from getting off the corporate ladder and deciding, okay, I, I want to live a more meaningful life, how did that feel when you first kind of got out of that? I mean, I think a lot of us probably feel that, you know, that adrenaline, and you're in, you're in it every day. And I'm just kind of curious what that transition was like and any advice that you have, you know, for that transitional time. So I was a teacher for six years, and... Um, after Jeff was fired from his job, I quit mine. So we were kind of um, building our business and it was scary. <laughs> um, I would never advise anyone to quit their job. <laughs> like, Make sure you have a plan in place. It's all about having a plan and knowing where you're going. And we've had that plan and we figured things out, but it's initially super scary. <laughs> and there was a ton of groundwork. I mean, I worked in um, essentially in a cubicle for seven years, and I had been building the business that became what we have now, which is called Spire. And it was one of those things that it was by no means an overnight kind of transition. It took a lot of work, but then when I ended up losing my job, it was actually a huge relief for me, not for her, she was a wreck. <laughs> But, but it was a relief because it actually sort of, for me, was that kick in the pants to really take things to the next level. Now, to start from, from zero, just to, I mean, because a lot of people sort of, sort of glamorize, like, quitting your job, it's going to be amazing and everything's so much better. But it's, it's, not, it's not that easy. It, it takes a lot of hard work. And laying that groundwork ahead of time is really going to be important to make that transition. But when you're ready for it, it is going to be the greatest day of your life. Have you ever seen those um, on the side of the road, there, there are these, uh, when you go through like Wyoming and, and parts of Montana, there, and there are even parts of California for runaway trucks? Yeah, yeah those little ramps that, that uh, give the runaway truck an opportunity to stop before you know, falling off a cliff. That's kind of what it felt like for me, uh, that I was a runaway truck, and I, I had spent all of my 20s climbing this corporate ladder and going faster and faster and busier and busier and busier. I was working 80 hours a week. I worked 362 days a year, and I felt like crap. I felt like I didn't have control anymore. It was a runaway truck. And 
but when you slam on the brakes and you go from 100 miles an hour to functionally zero miles an hour, it's still really startling. And, and so I wasn't prepared for how startling that would be, where you just sort of sit there in the cab of the truck and shake for a moment and realize that I'm not scared of what's going to happen in front of me. It's just my, I'm scared of what did happen already. And I certainly don't want that to happen again. Thanks. Hi, my name is Rebecca. Um, my question's for Joshua. Um, I'm a writer too, and um, I'm kind of experiencing what you had referred to during that other question where you kind of have an idea and then like it fizzles out and then you go to the next idea. So I'm just wondering like how exactly you got to a point where you could focus more and like also where did that come like on your minimalism journey? I spent most of my 20s as an aspiring writer which means I didn't write very much. <laughs> but I aspired every damn day. <laughs> and, you know, I realized that our, our priorities aren't what we say they are. I used to say my health was a priority, but I weighed 80 pounds more than I weigh now. I used to say my relationships were a priority, but they were in shambles because I was spending time with tertiary relationships, coworkers and networking buddies and executives. And uh, I used to say that writing was a priority for me, but I wasn't spending time really doing it, right? And I used to say other things were priorities, but the truth was our priorities are how we spend our day. We're not all born in the same circumstance. We don't all don't have the same resources, but we all have the same 24 hours in a day. And we get to decide how we're going to spend those 24 hours. And so I started reprioritizing some of those hours. And for me, it was first, it was one hour. So I used to get up at uh, 5.45 every morning, and I said, okay, well, I don't have another hour in the day. Now, I'm not advocating you stop sleeping, but I started getting up at 4.44 every morning. My alarm was set for 4.44. I wrote for one hour every morning. And the, the four most powerful words that were ever told to me was uh, by a writer named Donald Ray Pollock. He's a novelist. And, and he said, sit in the chair. That's it. Just You have to do the work. You have to sit in the chair. No distractions, nothing else. It's not about page count or word count or any of these other things. You just have to sit in the chair. You have to be willing to do the work. And I think that's a powerful metaphor, even if you're not writing. But whatever else, whatever creative endeavor, project thing you want to do, you have to put in the hours. And eventually I started making time three hours a day. And that really crappy writing started turning into slightly less crappy writing. And eventually, you know, turned into better writing and, and so forth and so on. But it came from putting in the work. Writing is a weird thing because we expect to get better via osmosis. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of an aspiring carpenter. You know, someone isn't a carpenter because they put in the hours and they're, they're willing to do the work. And I think the same is true for most professions. And we just need to be willing to, to sit down in that chair and, and, and do the work. You gotta make it a priority. Mm -hmm. And if you're spending your day on email or Facebook or Instagram or whatever else, it just means you're saying yes to that, which means you're saying no to writing or whatever else you wanna do. Thanks. Thank you. All right, before we close it out, I wanna thank some folks. Did, did you all hear the music in this film? How amazing was that? So, a reporter asked me recently, we were, I was talking to the newspaper, and, and uh, she said, it, sometimes they ask the, the strangest questions. And I think it's like, try to, they, they're strange questions up front trying to loosen you up. She said, if you were trapped on a desert island with one album, what would it be? And uh, there's a band from Utah originally called Parlor Hawk. And uh, their second album is an album called Parlor Hawk. And it just came to mind instantly. Like, that, that's obviously the album that I would, if I was on a, a desert island, I could listen to one album for the rest of my life. It would be that album. And the, the lead singer, lead singer for that band is a guy named Andrew Kapaner. And 
about three years ago, I started begging him to make the, the music for this film. And after talking to him for about six months, we actually became pretty good friends. And um, I've just loved his music. And so he partnered up with a, a guy named Nate Pfeiffer, who is a really talented Grammy-nominated producer, and uh, made the music in this film for next to nothing because it was a, a project they, they really believed in. And so Drew is here tonight. I'd love for him to at least come up here and, and grab a hug really quick. Really appreciate you, brother. And I'm told that uh, he and Nate, so they formed a band just for the, for the film. It's, if you Google their, their name, it's We, V-V-E, right? And uh, you Google it, you're not going to find anything because they formed a band. That's the type of stuff that he does. Like, he'll just do random creative stuff like that. And we, I, I'm just so grateful. The, the soundtrack to this is amazing. They just sent me a final version of it a week, less than a week ago. And I think Ryan and I were talking about this before. We've played it out by now. I, I've listened to the thing a hundred times already. And so a lot of the things, uh, songs you've heard on there, they've added vocals and some other stuff, and I'm pretty sure they're going to have it up within the next week or so. So um, you all will have access to that. Thanks so much, Drew. Appreciate you, brother. <laughs> We've been on the road for about a month, and touring is crazy expensive. And... Um, we don't do like regular advertisements or anything like that, but um, Ryan and I started a, a blog six years ago, but we didn't know it was called a blog at the time, and we couldn't even spell HTML. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I remember like after we had started the, the web, we called it a website, and what we wrote were essays because we didn't know what a blog post was. And, and so, I called him about a month in. I was trying to code this entire website in HTML. I'm like reading books at the library, and I'm, I just call him one day, and I'm like, man, I cannot do this anymore. I'm done. I, and uh, we finally figured out about this thing called WordPress and, and how to host your own site. And, and our hosting company is a company called Bluehost. And I reached out to them at the beginning of this tour and said, hey, um, would you be willing to give us some money to help us travel to get this message out to more people? And uh, they said, yeah. And they've been really supportive of this movement over the last you know, quite a few years now. And I just want to say thanks to Bluehost. They're the reason we're able to travel out here tonight. So thank you so much. <laughs> and what about this theater? How awesome is this? Can we thank them, give them a round of applause as well? So um, our, our, dis our distributor is a company called Gather Films, and they're here tonight. Um, so they, uh, we have an interesting relationship with them. We were approached by them. Initially, we were just going to put this out online, but now it's going to be in about 400 theaters starting May 24th. That's uh, this coming Tuesday, actually. And uh, it's because we partnered up with them, and they're hosting, helping us host screenings all over the United States and, and all over Canada as well. If you enjoyed the film, you want to share it with other people, there's other screenings going on, but you can also host your own screening as well. Just go to minimalismfilm.com, click on See the Film, and you can help bring it to your community if, if you found value in the message. But I want to say thanks to Gather since they're here tonight. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> so at the end of all of this, if you don't want you know, to get these disgusting hugs from two sweaty minimalists, um, then that's okay. You can exit through, through the, the right side here. But if you want to line up, we're going to do hugs and, and uh, books. If you do get a book from us, be sure to minimize it afterward, obviously. Um, and if you didn't bring your wallet with you, you can't afford a book tonight, that's okay. We'll, we'll, it's on us. Feel free to, to take a book, please. We, we want to buy one for you. Um, it's another way that we can definitely get the message out. So you know, pass it on to someone else who can obviously get value from it. So we'll start a line over here. Uh, at the end, if you want to, if you want to line up and, and grab a hug or, or pictures or whatever we're doing, we're doing all that, right? And uh, most important, I want to thank you for being here. We every uh, sold out event that we're doing, we have six hours of of bonus content that we're going to send because we did a thousand hours worth of interviews for this or of, of of footage for this thing, and a lot of that was interviews. So we're going to have about six hours of 
a lot of the interviews that, that were in here expanded, but also some interviews that we loved, but they just didn't make the film, uh, including some stuff with Drew that we, we filmed, and it just didn't make the, the final cut of the film. So you'll get, uh, when it comes out online, this it'll come out uh, August 2nd, I believe it is. Uh, it'll be out all over online, and everyone who pre-orders the film gets it, but anyone who attends a a sold-out screening of the film uh, gets those six hours as well. So we'll email all that to you. But before you leave, I just I just really want to say thank you. Really appreciate you being willing to spend this time with us. You could be any, anywhere in the world, and you chose to be here with us. And really, we're really, really grateful. And I hope you, you grab a hug afterward. And, of course, if you leave here with one message, I, I hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for your time, y'all. Just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for And you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it so take your eyes away, or take.